everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Just a reminder, we have new merch designs available in our shop, so just go on over to indefensiveplants.com and look at apparel up at the top. All of our merch is customizable, so you can find a style that works for you, and most importantly, help keep the show up and running. I couldn't be doing Indefensive Plants without your support. For today's episode, we are diving back into a conversation I had back in early 2020. You're going to recognize Dr. Adam Karamans from last week's podcast, but he was also joined by PhD student Melissa Diaz-Morales. Both of them have a unique passion for the world of orchid pollination, and in this episode, we are celebrating some of the most unsung pollinators in the entire world, and that is flies. The relationship between one of the largest subtribe of orchids in the world, collectively referred to as the Pleurothalids, and flies is fascinating. And those flies have a lot to do with why this subtribe is just so diverse. But who better to tell you that than the scientists themselves? So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Adam Karamans and Melissa Diaz-Morales. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Adam Caramans and Melissa Diaz-Morales, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Welcome back. Uh, how about we start off with a little bit about who each of you are and what each of you do? So thanks, Matt, for, for inviting us again to, to talk a bit uh, about orchids on your uh, program and especially about pollination because that's uh, such an amazing subject. So I'm... Adam Karimans, uh, director of Lancaster Botanical Gardens in uh, Costa Rica. It belongs to the University of Costa Rica. And I do research on orchids specifically, mostly on pleurothalids, so miniature orchids, but also vanilla and a few others. And um, I'm very, very much interested in, uh, in orchid pollination and uh, the systems that uh, or the strategies that orchids use to attract their pollinators. It's one of the greatest systems for that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, orchids are, are amazing to, to study in that sense because they have um, developed so many uh, different strategies to, to attract their pollinators and then, you know, um, get pollinators or insects or birds or whatever to, to move pollen around without them having to move. <laughs> nice. And Melissa? Well, I am Melissa Diaz Morales. I graduate from Botany from the University of Costa Rica. I am a researcher at Lancaster Botanical Garden. And right now I'm trying to explore even more in pollination ecology of orchids. So right now I started on my PhD Ooh. in the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology in Germany. So that's what I'm doing right now. Wonderful. Well, congratulations to you both. Since you were last on the podcast, you've both upgraded in your positions. So well done. Glad to see intelligent, <laughs> uh, <laughs> eager people succeeding in life. Thanks. Thanks. I don't, Thank know if it, I don't know if it's because of the podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, we'll temper our expectations in that regard. But the reason we're, we're, we have you on here again today uh, is because you have published an incredible paper on one of the coolest subtribes of orchids on the planet. A little bit of a bias here, but the Pleurothalids. And Adam, you mentioned those, these miniature orchids. I mean, there's a lot of size variation mm -hmm. within that group. But 
why the Plurothalids? I guess we'll start with sort of what they are, what this subtribe kind of represents, and why that was kind of your focus for this paper. So, well, Plurothalids, they are interesting, especially because it's such a huge, vast group, uh, such a diverse group in, in number of species. Um, it's probably the biggest, largest subtribe in, in all Orchidaceae. Hmm. So it's the biggest group in orchids. And so little is known about the reproduction, so the pollination of uh, the species belonging to this group. So when Melissa and I dug into this, more than half the genera had no reported pollinators at all. Whoa. And we are talking about, right now, about 5,400 and something accepted species. This grows about 100 species per year. Whew. And out of those, there's maybe 20 or 30 species of which there's actually a thorough pollination study and thorough observations of how the, they they are uh, pollinated and how the insects are attracted to these flowers. And so with Melissa, we, we gathered information for about 150 species or, or cases uh, in which these uh, orchids were pollinated. And so we we kind of thought, well, let's let's start with giving an overview of what is known in the pollination of this group because it's so large and there's like i said so little known and it was worth worthwhile to to know what actually you know to gather what is known and also to pinpoint what isn't known i think that that was even more important to say well we have so many gaps of knowledge here and this is what we don't know Fascinating. Yeah. And it is strange to think about it because orchids are a charismatic group of plants. They're very beautiful. They attract a lot of attention for a lot of different reasons. And here's a group that is essentially one of the largest subtribes within this family. And yet very little is known about it. And so why do you think so little attention has been paid to sort of the pollination relationships among these orchids? Is it just difficulty in studying, trying to find the, the, the human power to do it? Or is it because they're living far up in the canopy and are extremely hard to observe? I mean, what, what kind of reasons do you find in your experiences that it is so limited in their knowledge? Well, I think that a lot of it is that uh, people is actually not saying what they are seeing. It is definitely uh, like very difficult to, to make uh, observations in situ and, and see what's in there. But once that we proposed, to start doing this kind of observations that start this project, we start to see the pollinators there. If you put attention, they are there. And also, every time that we start to talk about this in a conference, in a talk, in these kind of interactions with other people, we always heard about, about other colleagues or even just enthusiasts saying, yeah, I once saw this little fly in this species, something that we never heard about it, that we didn't even knew that was going on or that kind of stuff. So that was, kind of how we start like gathering all this information like oh so this is visiting this species of orchids this fly is also visiting uh, closely related orchids or not so closely related orchids and then was when we started to make hypothesis and we started to talk more about this because we realized that the best strategy to gather as much information as possible 
was not doing the observations by your own because that would be impossible as you said is one of the biggest groups in orchids so we cannot just go there around all the neotropic though we would love to but <laughs> we cannot do that like to just go there and make the observations the observations by our own so we have to start talking more about this and and encouraging our colleagues in colombia in ecuador everywhere like to go there and make the observations document it make videos make photos every kind of of proof that you can have and sometimes we receive photos of things that we know for sure it's not the pollinator but still it's like evidence that okay this is another insect that is also being attracted to this flower so so maybe we can use that uh, later as also as information on okay this flower is producing something that is attracting both its pollinator but also this other range of different like diversity of insects not just uh, the little flies that are pollinating and so on. So I think that's one of the main reasons why there was so little information and also because it's very hard to publish just like pollination reports. It's not something that you can like get easily published. So unless you have like a vast array of data just to say like I saw this pollinating this, it's not something that is going out that easily. So that's something that can explain the lack of information that we, we still have in the pollination in. It is interesting how much sort of the culture of publication can influence these sorts of data. And you just outlined it perfectly. I mean, so many of these are just observations or pictures that people have taken while doing other work, right? But they are so vital to understanding the ecology of these species. I mean, again, this is one of the largest groups of orchids and pollination is vital to that, the success of any species. Uh, and so, you know, the lack of that, it's upsetting, but it's also kind of, like you said, a reflection of this this sort of we need big strong theory to be testing and publishing it's 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 really a failing i think on the the journal side of things yeah i, I completely agree with melissa in, in this in sense um we have had a hard time trying to publish a few papers that deal with actual pollination studies with hours of observations and it has been difficult and the reason it's been difficult is because journals have a certain standard, which we understand, of course. Mm -hmm. But pollination is not always easy to, to you know, to comply. In, in pollination studies, it's not always easy to comply with these, with these standards. And so there's a lot of information out there that, that are just little pieces and by themselves can't actually be published. And so are, in a way, unaccessible but are, are very valuable. Um, and especially if you're able to, to gather all of those together and you know piece of uh, theory and ask uh, certain questions with those um, data. Um, I think that's, that is indeed a, an issue that, you know, that, that we can't always access this information. We have found information in all sorts of different places. So you can find pictures in books, you can find on pictures on Facebook, you can find people that just write and say, hey, I saw that you're working on this, or I heard your talk, and, you know, I took this photograph, or and, and I have this video, and do you think that's useful? And that has been quite interesting. In fact, there's a lot of videos or, or photographs that actually show pollination without people noticing that, that they, they, they are seeing pollination happening because we're dealing with small orchids with small flowers and small flies that pollinate these uh, 
these plants. So that's kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, and it is interesting, like you said, in the context of social media and and the connectivity now between people, and and even if they're not noticing it, there's important observations happening, and it just requires you know knowing eyes or, or knowledge behind the eyes to see it and go, oh, hey, that's important or that's something unique. We should run with that. But I can kind of see how these the struggles to kind of put these ideas together informed sort of the format of this paper. I mean, to tackle pollination in the subgroup is no small task, but it is important to kind of assess, like you said, what you do and more importantly, what you don't know about that. But in thinking about this subtribe, the pleurothalids, again, they're small orchids and they have very elaborate floral morphologies. Some of the coolest flowers you're going to see in the orchid world, you just kind of have to, you know, get some magnification to fully appreciate what's going on there. And judging by what I've read in your paper, it seems like the old idea of classifying species based on morphology alone, not to say that it's like an old idea, but it doesn't really work for this group because things that look alike might not be related at all based on molecular analysis. Is that correct? Yeah, that is one of the uh, the key results I think uh, from the paper. It it ha- it had become apparent from DNA studies that a lot of species with very similar flowers are actually not related to each other, and others that might not look alike are actually close relatives. And well, we we know this already for a fact. People still doubt it, and that's. That is, in a way, logical because we we are strongly, very strongly biased towards looking at floral morphology to infer relatedness in plants and, and also in orchids. Um, but floral morphology has a very strong selective pressure, or insects actually, or, or pollinators, they, they, they place a very strong selective pressure on these uh, floral morphologies. And so what you would expect is that flowers that look alike but are not related to each other, which we know happens thanks to DNA studies, um, that they probably have a similar pollination strategy. And that is what we now uh, can definitely confirm in some cases, where we find that flowers of completely unrelated genera, but that look alike, have the same pollinators or the same family of pollinators. And that is what you would have expected um, to, to be occurring. And we can definitely, we, we don't have enough data to do that for the whole subtribe and for all the genera, but we do know uh, for certain cases where flowers are very similar, that they just have the same pollination syndrome. Yeah, and thinking about pollination for this group, uh, you know, when most people hear pollination, they think of the three Bs, butterflies, birds, and bees. But you already hinted at it, most of Mm -hmm. the pollinators for this group are actually small flies. And fly pollination is bizarro, but here's an example of over 5,000 species, give or take, uh, that have used it to some degree in their successful evolution and reproductive efforts. So looking at these flowers as varied as they are, nothing jumps out to me as being like, oh yeah, that makes sense. A fly would pollinate that thing. So what does it take to attract a fly? Well, that's a really interesting question because although at the beginning we kind of knew that uh, pollination by flies was being underestimated. Like you always hear like, yeah, the bees are pollinating orchids and so on, orchid bees and are so interesting. Uh, We knew that 
most of the few observations that we have like were flies so we start seeing a pattern and as much as we start collecting information we saw more like a confirmation that yeah the whole group is being mainly pollinated by by flies i would say that since flies diptera is also like a huge group it's also so diverse that it's not something that like evolution can do just to attract diptera so we we usually used to do that like stinky flowers attract flies that goes there to to lay their eggs so when when it's about these carrion flies and so on i think like yeah it's a very very strong pattern that you can see there like flowers that are pollinated by these carrion or dung flies that goes there to try to lay their eggs but in orchids they are exploding like other interactions with the flies so we have like yeah we have flies that go there looking for for um uh, for a place where to lay their eggs but we are also seeing like flies that may go there just to to reproduce like use the flowers just like a, a place for reproduction there are flies that are going there to feed so since they are like looking for different stimulus like different stimuli in the flowers Flies are not always looking for places to lay their eggs. Only female flies are going flowers to lay their eggs. But males can also pollinate if they are looking for food or another female, if they're going to look for food. The orchid then can exploit all those stimuli, like chemical fragrances that triggers to the flies. The, yeah, this is a place where I can fit. This is a place where I can rest. This is a place where I can do like so many different behaviors that, that flies can do. So it's kind of, I would say the strategy that this group is using, like to exploit so many different arrays of behaviors in the flies to attract them as pollinators. That's kind of the answer. Like they are not doing just for flies. There are other insects that also can take advantage of those, of those signals and they can also pollinate the Pleurotalidine, but it's like very few cases and we are not even sure if some if it's something specific or just something occasional that can happen like a small wasp that went there and removed the the pollen or something like that so yeah i think that's kind of of the thing why most of species of this group is being pollinated by by flies because they are exploiting like a huge range of characteristics that can attract spillinators. I don't know if you can add something else, Alan. It's amazing to think of it in the context of biodiversity of the flies too. I mean, I'm such a plant nerd that I don't think about it in that as much. You know, I know there's different kinds out there, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're working with two extremely diverse groups of organisms here. And yeah, the, the, the difference in how flies mate or what they're looking for, what they eat would drive a lot of that relationship, I would assume. But, you know, are most of these orchids, again, trying to generalize across this massive group, are they non-rewarding? Is, is there a lot of trickery or, or uh, like deceit going on in the pollination mechanisms within this group? There is a bit of, of, of everything, um, <laughs> as far as we can tell. Let's say um, Melissa already mentioned that um, when we well we think of flies and we think of flies as a more or less homogeneous group, but this is a huge group with all sorts of uh, behaviors. So these these flowers are also like she mentioned using very different strategies. 
Um, Melissa can tell you later about the, her own studies on Dracula, which is a very particular case. But for instance, the group that I studied, Speclinia, is producing aggregation pheromones, which are the pheromones that some fruit flies and ants use to call the individuals from their uh, own nests and colonies when they find uh, food, a food source. Um, they'll produce these aggregation pheromones to call the others, let's say. Wow. And so these, these flowers are mimicking these aggregation pheromones and making the flies come to the, to the flowers, thinking that it's their own species signaling them. Um, there's also sexual pheromones being released by some pleurothalids, and uh, they are pollinated by male insects that are attempting to copulate with flowers. Wild. Um, then there's others that are actually producing nectar, and uh, they produce so much nectar in their flowers that um, they attract all sorts of insects. In fact, not only flies, as Melissa mentioned. I, I remember one case a species of Pleurotalis uh, that produces hundreds of flowers at the same time and is visited by all sorts of insects. I mean, different fly families, but also Imenoptera, so bees and wasps and ants and even some butterflies and even spiders come to the <laughs> flowers because they notice, I guess they, they, they realize they're visited by so many insects that they also set up shop in flowers and in fluorescences. And so you have a whole community of uh, animals and especially insects arriving and taking that nectar. And curiously in this particular case, after we caught all the visiting insects, um, we caught about a hundred of them, we realized that only 16 were carrying pollen and huh. those 16 had pollen were actually of a single fly family. So even though all these other visitors were probably able to take nectar, um, they were not effective pollinators only. There, there was very a very specific family of biting midges that was able to, to remove and, and, and place pollen. So yeah, there's a very large diversity of strategies here. And uh, so there's sweet smells, there's bad smells, there's uh, flowers that smell like they're rotten and flesh smells and, and there's fungus smells and I'll let Melissa tell you about that. Yeah, please do. This is actually like not my work because I have just started my PhD so I can talk to you yet about my results because I don't have any yet. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you, Corona. But, <laughs> but uh. other, other, <laughs> other researchers have done like an amazing job. I, they have kind of a system with Dracula where mm, the Dracula flowers are actually like mimicking fungus. So flies are going there, like flies that usually visit like fungus to reproduce and they're their eggs, they're their eggs and fungus that grows on trees. So they are, uh, Dracula is exploring like chemical mimicry and also morphological mimicry of this, of this fungus. They are producing like very similar array of, of scents that are produced by the fungus. And then a lot of, of flies are being attracted to the fungus. So they are visiting and they are pollinating the, the flies during this day there, which are, we have been observed, observing like a little bit of this interaction and flies can stay like 
very long time in the flowers and it's very hard to get them like disturbed they are like very into whatever they are doing there that we are not totally sure that they are going there to to the eggs because so far there is no evidence that they are actually hmm. in their eggs they are not oviposition yet uh, we haven't seen any kind of oviposition there also we are like trying to go further in trying to clarify this subject of rewards versus uh deceit because yeah it's like we usually generalize that uh these systems are deceptions but as alam already explained it once when we see with more detail we can realize that, that maybe there is a reward that we are not seeing or something that can like not really work as a reward but something like a small incentive that can help the, the insect to stay longer in the flower so yeah um, right now one of a master student of Adam uh, cutting his she's working with this system uh, in Costa Rica like trying to figure this a little bit like to clarify this um, the system and also to identify the, the pollinators that we have in Costa Rica and we kind of want to go even further in the in the chemical interaction of these flies with with the flowers that I really understand what are the flies emitting also there is like this hypothesis that that the flies are there like feeding on gist that is growing on the on the lip of the flower and it's something not weird for the flies to do they also feed on gist so we want to see how is this the microbiota on, on the leaves and everything it's, things that we have to figure out yet, but it's something that of what I would like to explore eventually. Yeah, eventually, yes. And we we wish the best for you in that regard. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's so strange to think of how these things evolve and, and really the specificity of it and the fact that even like you could, like you said, yeast could be entering into the picture. So there's a third party uh, beyond that that is actually, you know, facilitating the reproductive behavior of these plants. But all of this kind of comes down to the weird way in which orchids get pollinated. They don't wantonly dust their pollinators with a ton of pollen. They they stick these little sacks to them, and that means it's oftentimes this sort of lock and key scenario. So when we're thinking about pollination and biodiversity, it really starts to paint this picture that the pollinators and the plants sort of, you know, evolving over time with each other can drive this biodiversity to, to the point where we have over 5,000 and counting species of different orchid flowers, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, the, um, there is one important thing to consider always here, and it is that it is very likely that uh, pleurothalids are so diverse in species numbers because their pollinators are flies, and because that allows also the use of so many different species and behaviors and general flies. You have to remember that its pollination by bees is very famous. And there are a lot of orchids that are pollinated by orchid bees. But if you take, for example, the orchid bees, there's about 100 or so orchid bee species. And only the Drosophila family in flies has over a thousand species. Ooh. So, yeah, the numbers are just, I mean, there's so many possibilities in flies and that obviously allows for the development of a lot of different strategies through, you know, natural selection. And so I think that's that's definitely correlated to, to the diversity of pleurothalids. 
And again, when we're thinking about biodiversity, something everyone wants to tout these days, even if they truly understand what that means or not, you know, you're thinking, oh my gosh, okay, how do we explain all of these species? Okay, a lot of it's the way they're interacting and especially the way that they're they're reproducing. And going back to what we kind of talked about at the beginning, devaluing these sorts of observational studies or just sort of one-off, okay, I saw this, it's kind of devaluing what's really at the core of this biodiversity that we claim to care so much about. So this really emphasizes the need to try to understand these pollination systems, no matter how impactful they are in terms of journalistic prowess. Uh, these are vital to understanding why we're seeing so many species. And then from there, how we can make sure that these species can persist, because without pollinators... I don't, you know, there's no reproduction. Yeah, definitely. Um, Melissa and David Villalobos and I uh, were working on a, on a study of uh, an unrelated orchid genus um, called Brasia. Brasias are known as spider orchids. And there is this old myth that they were pollinated by spider wasps, spider hunting wasps uh, that would actually be fooled into thinking that the flowers were wasps and the wasp would attack the flowers thinking that they are spiders. And these are huge wasps of the Pompilid family. And so this myth has been going on in literature for, for several years and, and people never actually knew, you know, there were no really uh, well-recorded cases or documented cases of uh, pollination in Brasia. And we finally figured it out. And so we, we have several observations of these wasps uh, actually arriving on the Brasia flowers. These are, like I said, large, large wasps and removing pollen. But uh, what we saw is that they are not, not attacking the flowers at all. And so what we now know is that the brassias are probably deceiving their pollinators into thinking that they are offering nectar. Mm. That's what appears to be going on. And, but they are pollinated by the, by the famous spider hunting wasps. And uh, we even caught one uh, with the pollen uh, and we have several victims of this interaction. Nice. So, so we can actually say what pollinates um, Brasia and how, but we haven't been able to publish that. And I'm, I'm not complaining in a way, but it, <laughs> it, it goes to say there must be a lot of information on pollination out there. And it just doesn't, doesn't reach the threshold of uh, enough observations for some journals to uh, to actually get published, and and that that is a a bit of a shame because I mean I'm sure this would be useful information for people yeah. studying breath and and perhaps other orchids that are pollinated by these uh, these very same uh, wasps, and um, yeah, it's a bit funny to have to know for sure this is happening, but because we don't actually have, for example, three specimens collected, we only have one and the videos, yes, we have enough videos, but they are ma made only on two plants. And so it's not statistically significant. You know, it, I, I understand it, but at the same time, well, we're missing key information. <laughs> What is actually accepted in literature, we know for sure is not wrong or is half the story. Anyways, it's just an example. I'm sure there must be a lot of um, cases like this. 
Yeah, that's a really important example because, like you said, this is a myth that's been perpetuated through the literature. I mean, that's yeah. something you hear time and time again. And obviously, the first person, I kind of think I know who it is, that perpetuates this just by writing it in as a subline into other papers yeah. gets to repeat this misinformation time and time again, whereas people that try to make even just yeah. you know, observations are being penalized for statistical insignificance. <laughs> Indeed. And actually, it is funny that the reviewers or the editors have noted that we don't have enough statistical data to prove that myth wrong, but that myth wasn't based on any statistical data or, you know, it, it was just a sentence without any proof or, or otherwise. But that's kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, it's not like we lose sleep on that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good, at least. I don't want to see this in impacting your personal lives in any way. <laughs> uh, so in this paper, you make a really important note is that the, the different ages between, you know, the, the, the order that is flies and the subtribe that is the pleurothalids. And pleurothalids are, for all intents and purposes, much younger than the flies that are pollinating them. And oftentimes, uh, especially in these really specific cases, pollination is, is sort of taught as this sort of co-evolutionary dynamic. One begets the other and informs the other. But it sounds to me, at least in the context of the paper, that really the flies have been there. They're always doing what they're doing. And the flowers just happen to have tapped into this and then exploded as a result. Uh, it's not really that you know, the flies are specifically looking for the flowers and the flowers are doing specific things to attract them, correct? Yeah, so what we know is that these these orchids, they are, are very young compared to the flies in, in, in the sense that these, the pleurothalids themselves, the whole subtribe is not even 80 million years old, wow. which is very young compared to these flies. These flies are more than 200 million years old. And what we know is that very closely, th that's not part of this particular paper, but we have been working on that with Melissa. What we know is that some orchid species or pleurothalid species that are uh, very closely together and have separated from each other, so these species have separated from each other, maybe 5 million years ago or even less, 3 million years ago, they are pollinated by completely different fly families and these fly families have separated hundreds of, uh, of million years ago from each other. So basically what this means is that we know that it is probably the orchid flower or the orchid that is tapping into a pre-existing behavior of the fly and not the, it's not a case of co-evolution. So it's not like these orchids and flies are evolving together but rather that the flies are diversifying and the access, let's say, in a way, to flies is what at the end helps the orchids to, to evolve. You can think of it maybe like this. Genus Lepanthus, for example, which is second largest in the subtribe, has more than a thousand species. And they are pollinated by fungus gnats. And they are pollinated by pseudocopulations or by, through the use of sex pheromones. And Lepanthus species are typically endemics of uh, certain regions, so very narrow endemics. So, for instance, in one mountain, you'll find several species of Lepanthus. In another mountain, other species of Lepanthus. 
And so they, they are very diverse, but also they're very locally diverse. And in a way, you could imagine that if they are pollinated using these sex pheromones, and each one may have a different pollinator, you really need a lot of different pollinators, right, that are being able to, to pick up on these sex pheromones. And how can the, the new Lepanta species evolve? Well, you could imagine that if, if these signals are very specific and have a very specific chemistry, it could be that a simple change in this chemistry already attracts a different pollinator. So a little uh, change in the chemistry of the sex pheromone may attract a different uh, pollinator. And that, that may be isolating these flowers so quickly from each other. And so they, as soon as they colonize a new valley or a new mountain, and they acquire these changes in their chemical composition, they, they may find a, an insect that is interested in that and, and so therefore reproduce. Wow. Whew, that is remarkable. And it just goes to show you that like big things really do kind of come in these small packages. I mean, this is a miniature world playing out in the forests that no one really gets to see very often unless they're specifically going looking for it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's also amazing to think about sort of the interdisciplinary nature that this sort of paper begets. I mean, you are both orchid people. You know, I go out into the woods, I see an orchid. I'm like, yay, I saw an orchid. I know, you know, I identify it. I spend all that time. I have no idea what the insects are that are around. I can't identify flies. I don't know how to separate them. Same thing with the chemistry. Okay. We know flies are coming to this. What are these scent compounds? What is this plant doing to attract them? You have to then study chemistry and understand what different compounds might be to even identify where that direction might be going in terms of how it's attracting. I mean, this is truly takes a lot of different sorts of lines of knowledge to, to really fully grasp and understand. Yeah, indeed. That's one of the main reasons why I started like this PhD in chemical ecology. And so far, everything is very new because it's definitely like I'm working in a, in a lab that is totally focused on the, the insect perspective, like it's a neurology laboratory. So, so it's something that I've kind of felt that I, I needed to understand like the full story, you know, because yeah, if you see everything from the from the perspective of the orchids, you definitely set yourself some boundaries in your in your mindset, <laughs> let's say it that way. So yeah, like, you have to understand also how is the 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 fly uh, interacting with the flower, uh, how does it affect the, the fly, how, how it doesn't, if it does at all, and absolutely like the, the chemical interaction, how this insect, this small insect is receiving this signal in its brain, like it's just something that is, how is this working at all, is something that it's very necessary to, to really understand how it's everything working. I have to say that it changed a lot of, of the form of how you view this this whole systems because you can explain like things from your perspective as an archaeologist and as an archaeologist I have to say that it's the most interesting part for me of course <laughs> it's like very very cool but also not this other part of the story at the same time helps you to understand a lot of, of this evolution like yeah of course the this orchid species have to evolve like just a small change and it's something so like really so small like so basic like a 
a change in a bond in the chemical molecule can make like a huge difference in how this fragrance is is perceived in the insect of the brain so it can rather attract the insect or it can just do anything to it or it can even repel the insect so are so small things that can change the whole panorama of, of the story that yeah it's definitely super cool to think about all those kind of stuff Whew, yeah that's a lot to unpack but it's also just an incredible call to action for anyone that's curious about these sorts of things. And there's a lot of different avenues you can take to study this, but it sounds to me like some sort of database needs to be put together that even if journals don't want to publish this sorts of stuff, this, this information can get out there. <laughs> Not that you don't already have a ton on both of your plates, but. <laughs> no, well, actually it's a good point. And we started uh, with Melissa, we started a orchid pollinator collection at uh, Lancaster Garden nice. um, with, a, with a database as well. And so we are taking photographs. So this is not only pluripalates, this is um, any orchid. And uh, so we are keeping these pollinators now. And the reason we are doing that is because, uh, well, we can obviously photograph them, but we can then also do other studies like uh, look at placement of pollinaria in different insects and compare the different species with each other, and then even identify some pollinators and what pollen they're carrying, because we already have a orchid pollinaria collection. And so that complements uh, this uh, pollinator collection very well, because um, it, it sometimes happens that people bring in an insect, a bee or whatever, with pollen, and you want to know, well, can I know what orchid that is? And so in this way, we can actually identify it sometimes to genus level. And um, so that's that's very useful. Excellent. Yeah, I love to see those sorts of databases being put together and just, you know, accessible to people that want to do this. And in speaking of access, I mean, if anyone wants to read this paper, you did a great job in ensuring that anyone can click on it and, and read it. Um, you know, this is the sorts of stuff that gets people fired up. And you never know. It's not just academics that could bring new information to the table. Like you said, it could be photographers. It could be hikers. Anyone that's out making observations, snapping pictures could potentially be giving you a new data point, a new insight into the ecology of countless species all at once. Yeah, we have actually uh, been adding the information from, from photographs and, and from uh, materials that people have sent us after the paper as well. So we already have uh, a few more data points and uh, that's that's kind of exciting. People uh, like to share it as well. They love to participate somehow. And, and so that's also very, very nice. And it actually helps a lot. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Like, I think that that's kind of like the main source of our our hypothesis, like that Excel sheet that we have, and <laughs> that it's it just started just like this, like an Excel sheet that Adam start to to arrange in his computer, like uh, this fly is pollinating this orchid, and then we start to add columns with the, as far as we start like getting more information, and this insect pollinator collection that we have in Lancaster, of course, is just the insects that we could collect from our own observations in situ because our, our other colleagues at Lancaster like are basically the pollinators that we have found in, in the different projects from the Lancaster Botanical Garden because it's not that easy like to import insects and so on from abroad. But so it's not like 
the whole information that we have about pollinators. We don't have all these pollinators in our collection, uh, but having also this other database of, of all the information that we are gathering from, as Alan says, uh, social networks and other papers and old books and what people send us by email or whatever, it's also like a big compliment. They complement each other a lot for our purposes. Yeah. That's fantastic. And so in thinking about moving forward, obviously there's a lot more work to be done, so many more questions to be asked. I mean, if people want to find out more, potentially contribute some information, where do you recommend they go to uh, do that? Uh, they can obviously contact us directly, um, either Melissa or me or, or both, uh, just to our emails, uh, and that you can find in the paper itself, or, or you can just Google our names. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we can we are also both on Facebook, so if you if, if that's a way that you would like to contact us, that's also possible. And um, yeah, I mean they can also contact Lancaster Botanical Gardens, of course, and that they can just google that name and, and they'll get to the the main page and and the contact page there uh but yeah definitely we're open to any comments or suggestions or materials because uh, that, that really helps a lot and uh, sometimes we think well this is probably a mistake for example pollen on a leg of an insect but but with additional data we we actually uh, start finding patterns and start seeing oh actually this whole group does the same thing hmm. and there's a lot of orchids being pollinated by pollen placed on a lake, for example. Um, that, that seems kind of random, but it, it seems that it, it, it isn't. Um, so yeah, whatever, you know, whatever information is out there is, is really useful. And also to weed out the false positives because, um, you know, it's, it's important uh, to, to note that a lot of animals insects or birds can can visit flowers and are not necessarily pollinating them. I know it's very famous that um, masdevalias, these large masdevalia flowers are pollinated by hummingbirds, which we have no evidence for at all. In fact, all evidence suggests that they are not pollinated by by these hummingbirds. And um, just to prove to people that, because because I've had people coming up to me in conferences to, to tell me I'm wrong about this. <laughs> and seriously, I mean, wow. just saying, well, you can't prove that they're not. And, um, well, we can. Yeah. Because they are, first of all, all the information we have proves that it's flies. And secondly, I mean, there's... Uh, no morphological explanation and, and, you know, all the morphology actually correlates with fly pollination. But just to, to make sure that, that, you know, that this is uh, clear, I took a video of myself with uh, wearing a red shirt uh, in a cloud forest in, in Colombia, just to show that hummingbirds were coming at me because I had this red shirt. And so they, they are animal, very intelligent animals that will, you know, they will, they will always inspect these, these particular colors, these bright red and orange and, and purple colors. And after they know, they find that there's no nectar, no food there, they'll, they'll probably stop going there, but <laughs> um, they'll, they'll inspect it for sure. 
Oh, that's great. Well, again, I will put up links to all of this so people can access or contact you with any information they might have. But both of you, thank you so much for returning to the show and, and thank you for publishing this paper. Thank you for the work that you're doing. This is all really fascinating and important stuff for biodiversity. So keep it up. Thank you, Matt, again for the invitation and for keep alive the blog. It's very uh, interesting, all the things that you put in there and people, it's definitely like a huge uh, source of knowledge for all the people, the plant people out there, and definitely helps to, like, as, as we say, like, uh, people need to know about the things so we can also get this information. So probably now if people heard about this, they will approach us and say, oh, yeah, I saw this, this thing, because it's always like that. Every time that we can reach, like, a small group of people, they come back saying, like, yeah, we saw this, visiting this and this, removing pollen and this, and it's always very interesting to see all that kind of stuff. Well, happy to help any way I can. Spread the word, my, my. Yeah. <laughs> Doing what I can. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right, guys, you both have a great day. Stay safe, stay healthy, enjoy yourselves, and uh, keep it up. Thank you. Thanks so much. Cheers. All right. That was such a fun conversation. It was so great getting to talk to both of them about their respective interest in this world. And of course, to celebrate some of the coolest orchids and pollinators in the world. Let's hear it for flies. And I promise you, fly pollination doesn't end with orchids. They are some of the most important pollinators and some of the most overlooked as well. As always, I put all of the relevant links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com. I have made the podcast the homepage of the website, so it's even easier to find. Just navigate to each episode and click on the links. While you're over there, look at all the ways you can help support the show because, as I've said time and time again, shows like this can't happen without support. There are a lot of great ways to do that. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's a lot of great kickbacks over there, and their support goes miles in keeping Indefensive Plants up and running for you each and every week. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.